Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hello, it's Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians, and it is me, Cindy House. I am the host of this podcast, and thank you for listening. California-based Forest Sun, raised by back-to-the-lander hippies who were deeply involved in art and music, Forest channels healing through song. His latest album, Brighter Day, centers around the death of his father and then the end of his 10-year marriage. Forrest believes in the power of music and songwriting. In fact, it seems as though the songs demand to come out of him in this non-negotiable urge. During this interview, Forrest tells some epic family stories, but also gives a lot of insight into his family of origin and in turn giving us an idea of how he became the wonderful person he is today. Forrest and I met back in the early 2000s when I was in college and uh, he actually uh, came on my college radio show at least once, maybe twice. Uh, We probably haven't seen each other in 15 years. We ran into each other earlier this year at Folk Alliance, which is a huge music conference this past year in 2020. It was taking place in New Orleans. And the way we so easily picked up as if no time had gone by reminded me of his, at least from my perspective, strong ability to connect with other people. I asked him about that during our interview, and I was surprised to hear that connecting with other people can be a real struggle for Forrest and is something that he has to intentionally work on. Regardless, I really enjoy talking to Forrest and hearing about his early life, his thoughts on his name, and also his morning routine. Forrest is an inspiration to keep looking for the light in dark times. We're going to take a listen to his song uh, from the album Brighter Day. This song actually opens the record. It's the latest album from Forrest's son. We'll check out all this freedom, and then we'll get to our conversation with Forrest Sun on Basic Folk. What are you going to do with all this are yours, your hands are free Where you gonna go, who you gonna be It's your time, it's your parade What you gonna do, what you gonna say 
There was a time you were in chains Now just yourself remains Look in my eyes, there's no need to explain You'll never wear those chains again All right, for Sun, we are now tech wizards. Are you ready to have an emotionally charged conversation about your life now? Absolutely. There's nothing like 20 minutes of technical difficulties to <laughs> put you in the mood. Um, yes, it's we're connected. It's rolling. It's happening. And yeah, thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm happy I'm, to I'm talk glad. to you. Thank you for being on the podcast. I want us to start by talking about your parents um, they had a huge in- influence on you. Unfortunately, they have um, both passed away. Yeah. But their origin stories is very interesting. They were back to the Landers who raised you in upstate New York. Where did they originally come from? And also, what do you know about the back to the land movement and why they chose to be a part of it? Well, my mom's originally from Boston. Um, where we last saw each other. Oh, no, I guess we saw each other at Folk Alliance right, and, yeah. and reconnected. But 15 years ago, we, f- we first met on the airwaves at Emerson yep. uh, at 6 a.m. I remember it well. <laughs> um, and that's where my mom grew up. Um, and then she went to college in Antioch, which is in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And my dad grew up in Yellow Springs, Ohio, which is a tiny little liberal town, a little liberal arts college in the middle of Ohio. And they played folk music together. That's how they met. And they moved to upstate New York, bought a little piece of land and got married up there. I was at the wedding uh, in the belly. She was nine months pregnant <laughs> when they they got married at a big hippie wedding uh, outside on the land that they had bought. And my dad planted a garden and they started building a house out of recycled materials from uh, everywhere that they could find. And um, I spent the first six months of my life living in an orange tent mm. uh, while the house was being built. No no running water, outhouse, um, real, real back to the land stuff. And where it came from, I mean, I, there was certainly a strong uh, movement towards that in the early 70s. But I don't know if my dad was so much a product of that movement or if he was just born that way. I mean, he all he ever wanted was a garden and a home and to play music and make art and have his his own space to do that in. His life in in his last years and his later years was very much that. He he had his garden and he would go to town once a week on Sundays. He could walk to downtown Yellow Springs and play at the same coffee shop every Sunday for 10 years uh, for tips and free coffee. Actually, he didn't even know about the tips until I asked him once if he was playing for tips and he said, oh, I could put a yeah. Put a tip jar out. <laughs> so that was big news to him because uh, he didn't care about money. Money was he did life without money. His his he had that sort of hippie perspective of why would you want to earn money? You just have to give it to the government. And in his last years, he had a big wizard beard, you know, just down to his belly button, and um, wow, and that and a hat with the always had a feather in it that he had found somewhere. And um, was it the same feather or a different one? I think it was the same feather, and I think I, I think it was an eagle feather that he had lived out on the reservation in Arizona um, and had found that feather feather there. So oh, that's a big deal. Yeah, it meant a lot to him, and um, he was there with his wife was teaching English, and then he went on to study Buddhism and acupuncture in Colorado and um, and in Nepal, and then moved back to his hometown of Yellow Springs and have his garden, 
live in the house that he grew up in as a kid. And, um, and yeah, he just uh, passed away uh, about a year and a half ago now. And so I was really sad and sorry to see him go. Hmm. Uh, I miss him a lot. He was a huge inspiration to me musically, you know, as, as well as his philosophy on, on life. And he was the kind of guy you would ask him a question and he would take so long to answer that by the time he answered, I would have no idea what he was talking about because my mind would have moved on, moved on to other things. Do you mean that there was, um, there was silence? Yeah. He wouldn't like a talk, lot. talk, 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 and then finally get to it. There would just be the silence. There would just be silence. Yeah, no, he wouldn't. He wouldn't uh, my mom was a nonstop chatterbox, but my, <laughs> my dad was, yeah, there was a lot of silence and a long pauses before answering and he would give things some deep thought, though he would surprise me sometimes with some with some humor. And uh, I miss him. And I miss my mom a lot, too. She she died in 2008 um, after fighting stage four mm. lung cancer for, for four years. And, and we did a, a couple of benefit CDs that your listeners might enjoy. They're called Songs for Laura. My mom's name is Laura. And over 40 artists contributed their music to raise awareness and funds for people with cancer and their families. Mm. And... Lots of wonderful folks on there on the songs for for Laura volumes one and two. I got a couple more questions about your parents, if that's okay. Um, like sure. specifically going back to your upbringing, and you were talking about being in the tent, spending the first six months living in a tent while your dad was building this house, which you don't have any memory of this time. But what did you hear about that time for what it was like for both parents? I think they had really different experiences. Um, and, and my parents divorced when I was two. So I think it was really hard on my mom. She did, she's a really social person. My dad was not. You know, he was really happy with nature as his companion. Animals, walks in the woods. Um, and he likes people, but I think in a lot smaller doses. Mm. And, uh, and I think my mom found it really hard to be up there with uh, no running water and no electricity and no people around and a new baby. And, uh, you know, uh, they were both young. I mean, she was 23 when I was born. So I, I can imagine myself in both of their shoes at that time, having it be just a very different experience mm. for both of them. And also your parents have a pretty epic history with music legends. Your dad chopping wood with Garth Hudson of the bands, being roommates with Maria and Jeff Moldar. Your mom watching Pete Seeger and Joan Baez play in her uncle's living room, dating a Chambers brother. Like pretty, and those yeah. are just like a handful of stories that I imagine that were being told around you. How are these stories presented to you? And then how did you receive them as a kid? And what was the evolution of your realizing how unique your parents' history actually was? Yeah, I, a lot of those stories I didn't get to hear until recently. Um, it was just a few years ago when I really started digging deep with my dad and getting him to talk about things because as I said, he, he, he didn't talk a lot. And so he had all these amazing experiences that, um, that nobody really knew about. He had never, it was not, he was not one to, to, to talk about those things, but every once in a while, if I'd bring something up, he'd be like, oh yeah, I remember that guy that he knew, you know, mm. Jeff Muldor personally, or, and he said, he said I was a pretty good picker or, or talking about the band and chopping with, with Garth Hudson and I love when I found out just a few years ago that that he literally uh, laid the floor that Dylan stood on in Woodstock at Albert Grossman's studio. So, you know, he put down the wood floor in the studio. And then his story about meeting Dylan was he didn't get to meet Dylan. 
Maria and Jeff Muldor uh, invited him to it. There was a party out at Grossman's and Dylan was going to be there. And my dad was already growing his own food at this point. And he was growing his own beans and ma had made a pot of his own beans and had the most horrendous case of flatulence from his newly grown beans. And so he declined to go to the party. Oh, and so he missed m meeting Dylan. Uh, but that's my dad. Oh my god! <laughs> in a nutshell, there. So, what was I? I actually had heard that story. That's why my reaction was like so measured because I'm. It's like a hilarious story. Uh, yes. What was it like when he told that story? Like, was he like laughing his face off when he was telling you that story, or was it like very like, well, <laughs> here's what happened. <laughs> Yeah, he, it's sort of, he, he would get a little grin, you know, he'd get a grin. And he had uh, lost a bunch of teeth at the end, so he had this toothless grin that was <laughs> was really great. When he would get him to flash it, he had a, he had a wonderful laugh. And um, my mom, on, on the other hand, talked a lot, so I heard a lot of her stories growing up. And that one about her seeing Pete Seeger filming this TV show in her uncle in in her uncle's, my great uncle's living room, which I've actually seen. There's video footage of it out there, which is awesome. Um and Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee uh, were there, and Joan Baez. And, and so that was a huge influence on her at age 17, wanting to learn to play. Mm. And, of course, she would go to Passim and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and When it was a Club 47? There. Exactly, That's yeah, back cool. in the day. But I like the, the sort of full circle-ness of uh, being on a Puto Mayo compilation a few years ago now. And there was lots of great folks on there. Jeffrey Foucault was on there. But Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee were on there. And... It was after my mom had already passed, but I think she would have really got a kick out of that oh, to totally. see me uh, on that Putumayo compilation with the Sunny Terry and Brownie Mickey, who she'd met when she was 17. That's so cool. It's like, who else do you need to meet at that point in order to inspire you to start making music or at least have it yeah. in your life in a huge way? Or imagine having a whole living room just full of inspiring musicians at that age. That's amazing. Um, yeah, very cool. I wanted to talk about the influence of each of your parents on you specifically, like in reading about your mom, Laura Fleischman. Fleischman, Fleischman. Yeah. She was a dancer. She loved art. She was a poet, was fascinated with the bohemian world of the 20s, was a Native American rights advocate. How did that all translate into your connection with her? It's an interesting question. You know, growing up with her, you know, the, all that was just, that was my life. And I didn't realize maybe how different it is from the way other people had, had grown up. In high school, she was a um, manager for Dennis Banks, who was one of the leaders of the American Indian movement. And she was uh, a manager for Rodney Grant, who's a, a Native American actor. Uh, you may remember Wind in His Hair from um, Dances with Wolves. Did you ever see Dances with Wolves with Kevin Costner? I, that's on my so list. It. It's in my queue. Oh, you got to see it. So. <laughs> You'll look for Rodney Grant as wind in his hair. He's, uh, he's got a great role. Um, and so there was, my house was just always full of people coming and going and staying over. And, you know, I was a teenager, so mostly I was trying to get out of the house. <laughs> but looking back on it, uh, I met some really great people, a lot of whom are, are gone now, but that I, I feel really privileged to have known and, and had in my home. And we spent every summer at a place called the Omega Institute where, where she worked, which is in upstate New York. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's like a summer camp where they have classes in everything you can imagine. If you go into a new age section of a bookstore, all those teachers come through and teach. Um, but then they also had an arts week with Baba Tunde Olatunji and Bobby McFerrin and, and um, wonderful folks like that that would come through and play and sing. And that was a wonderful place to spend summers. I got exposed to a lot. I miss it. I haven't been back in years. It's still going on. 
Um, I did go back and, and, and teach a class there called Express Yourself for Teens, where I got everybody singing and making art which is my other hat when I'm not making music. I like to paint, mm. and that's what I studied in school at UC Santa Cruz and, and in Barcelona. So, um, yeah, did I answer your question there? I rambled for a bit. Yeah, I, I feel like from my perspective, reading about what your mom was interested in versus like what your dad was interested in, like she seems like she maybe instilled a love of um, the beauty of art in you. Yeah. Just an assumption. No, that is that is very insightful. I would say yes. Uh, she always thought of herself as an artist, though she did play folk music and and sing. Um, and she ran her own business, uh, designing and selling jewelry for for many years, and then importing artifacts from all over the world that she would sell at the store at Omega. And um, and she was also she had a lot of anxiety, so she had to overcome her fear of flying in order to go anywhere. She was afraid to get in elevators, mm. but she would do it. She would uh, do it despite her fears. And she she had a full life till the end, and it was um, pretty brutal to see her have to fight so hard mm. to to stay alive because she didn't want to go. That's a, so you know, some wow. people get get ill and they're and they're gone in a few weeks, a few months, maybe a year. And she fought on for four and a half years, emaciated and struggling and in pain, and just saying, "I don't want to die." So, what was your relationship that, like with her towards the end of her life? It was intense uh, at at that time to 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 watch her go through all that, and um, she was a very social person, and so she would come to life. Like I threw some some concerts, uh, benefit concerts with the songs for Laura CDs when they came out. She would get all dressed up and put on makeup, and even though she had you know hadn't gotten out of bed in months, and would go to these events and really come to life with the music because she loved the music, and she loved seeing people, and so uh, we had wonderful concerts in Santa Fe while she was still alive. And then um, after she passed away, we, we did some memorial concerts uh, at one at the Cactus Cafe down in Austin, Texas, with a bunch of Texas songwriters and um, did one in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and one out here in Mill Valley, California, where I live. Your relationship with your dad, um, when it comes to like thinking about your mom, was this poet, artist, dancer. Your dad had a lot of like practical skills. He was displaying around you like gardening carpentry building a house farming yeah what was that he, relationship he, he had like? he had old trucks that he uh that he used to oh yeah mechanic keep working <laughs> he was a mechanic as well yeah i once you know drove across country with him in a 54 chevy from santa fe to vermont um he, my relationship with him in regards to those things i in retrospect i wish i had i had paid more attention and learned more of that stuff from him. Um, but I was often, you know, since my parents weren't together, I would be with my mom during the school year and see him in the summers. And um, I was off playing with my friends, you know? I wasn't like, hey, dad, teach me mechanics. <laughs> you don't teach me how to do it. But in retrospect, I wish I wish I had learned carpentry from him because um, I've talked to many folks at his memorial last year in, in Yellow Springs who, you know, told me, oh yeah, your dad built my kitchen or he put in these cupboards or, you know, and he always did everything so carefully and so beautifully and and just took his time and made sure it was done right that's that is the way he he was though he was very much an artist too i would have to say um because he was interested in ceramics he would sculpt these otherworldly creatures these elves and dragons and he also painted and would show uh, show his paintings and then he also played music and he would got into slide guitar in the end he would 
play like some lap steel, cover some of my songs, which I really enjoyed. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, but I feel, to, to answer your question more directly, I do miss, feel like I missed an opportunity to have spent more time with him and learned more from him in that regard as a carpenter, as a mechanic, as a farmer, as a gardener. Um, though I am a gardener now, and so I feel like I inherited some of that, but there's, um, I'm sure there's more I could have learned from him. I feel like um, when I was a kid growing up, like my dad had some, you know, skills, um, you know, just around the house, like fixing things up. But I didn't know about it until I bought a house. And then he came out and he was helping me with all this stuff. I'm like, how do you know how to do this? It's like a mystery. It's a secret. Yeah. That Yeah, it that's amazing what our attention does right i mean whatever we're interested in is what is what we learn and i find that changes with time what we're interested in yeah and i suppose that's a good thing keeps things interesting or or maybe that's how we how we accrue wisdom um i i think the setup is for most people by the time we reach towards the end of our lives i think we finally get our values straight (laughs) (laughs) and we start paying attention to what's really important when we don't have as much time left mm. to enjoy it. Um, so uh, I aspire to, to pay attention sooner mm. rather than later. Can we talk about your name? Yes. Yeah, so your stage name is Forest Sun, but you grew up with your dad's last name, and we should say David Schumacher is your dad. Yeah, so my full name is Forest Sun Schumacher, um, but nobody knows that except the IRS and all your listeners and now, now. Now we all know uh, it. Um, now everybody knows, but um, yeah, it's on my birth certificate. Forest Sun is my first and middle name. So Forest and Forest Sun is like such a hippie name, and like Forest as a first name is not too common. And I was wondering, yeah, there's some, there's a, there's some generations in the South that an older generation of Forest with two R's, like Forest Gump, and you just have one, you know, that spelling. I just have one R. Yeah. What was it like for you to be a kid named Forest? How did you feel about your name growing up and how do you feel about it now? Now I love it. I, I feel like I've really grown into it and embrace it. And I mean, I feel like my dad named me and my mom really aptly in that I feel completely, if I need to fill my will, if I feel depleted in any way and I need to f- come back to myself in some way, uh, a walk in the woods always does that for me. And there is something about the light shining through the trees that brings me back to myself and my sense of, of who I am. And uh, so in that sense, it, I feel like it was a gift. It was a boon because it's like, uh, how many times have I heard those words in my life that they're just kind of calling that, uh, that feeling to me every time I hear my name. So it's a reminder of who I am, which I think a name should be since we, I mean, that's the thing we hear the most in, in our lives probably. Mm. I mean, uh, certainly that's something that we pay the most attention to. Uh, though I don't have kids, I, maybe my I have two little nieces, so maybe my my brother would disagree about, you know, when when your kids are saying your your name over and over again or call it mom, dad. But as a kid, um, as I as you may have guessed, it, it was it was different. It was really different. I mean, I got called shrub, twig, underbrush, you know, um, leaf, anything, uh, hunter. For some reason, people often confuse the name forest and hunter. I don't know why. Um, and then Forrest Gump came out and there was plenty of teasing around all that. I was actually studying art in, in Barcelona when that movie came out um, and a little homesick. So I really enjoyed just seeing America on the, on the screen and hearing American accents. And because I, 
the year I was studying art in Barcelona, I immersed myself totally and on purpose, not speaking any English for the whole year and just only spending time uh, with Spanish mm. or Catalan speakers there because I really wanted to learn the language, which I did. But I did go to the movie theater and, and see that film. And um, so people used to tease me about it in Spain. Uh, Forres Gump <laughs> with a Spanish accent is as they would. Um, but there was a time when I wished for a normal name very much. Um, and I, um, But that's not now. <laughs> now I'm glad to be for a son. Now, as an adult, you have like a really great ability to connect with people. Um, you cultivate an immediate connection, which I um, know from like personal experience of knowing you for so long. We hadn't seen each other for 10, 15 years. And, you know, you showed up at Folk Alliance and we talked to each other for like two minutes and I was like, oh my God, there's Forrest. And just like, it, it was like a day hadn't gone by since we had seen each other. Um, but what was it like growing up? How did you relate to other kids, adults, and how did you learn to connect with people? It's actually a real challenge for me, connecting with people and something that I work at. So it's really nice oh. to hear you say that. Uh, because I, I'm, uh, the people assume because if you are on stage that you're an extrovert. Being on stage actually is not an extroverted activity. You're, I feel like I'm inviting people into my world, mm. you know, um, rather than. Uh, so it, it, as an artist, that's that's part of how it happens, I think. Um, but I do, um, and especially lately, like many of us, get a lot of alone time. Mm these days and it really it really makes me look forward to events like this doing the podcast with you and a chance to connect and talk but i suppose i have both my my dad's silence and my mom's chattiness <laughs> at the same time <laughs> and uh and the chattiness can can come out when it's needed but i think uh i know i have a deep love for people i mean i just feel like we're all one essentially and it's it's uh to have a chance to see this unique expression of infinite energies or consciousness or divinity or whatever you want to call it expressed in another human being so uniquely is really phenomenal. Hmm. Um, I want to talk about when you went to college in Santa Cruz at UCSC. Can you talk about moving to California? Were you in New Mexico at the time, living in New Mexico, and then went to California? Yeah. Yeah, I went to high school in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yeah, and then went to visited a couple schools out here in California. Loved the Redwoods uh, at UC Santa Cruz. Fell in love with the Redwoods and with that campus up on the hill overlooking the ocean. It's a pretty magical time in life to, to be striking out on your own for the first time, but in this really culturally accepted and safe sort of way mm. of, of college, yeah. you know, of the university experience. And Santa Cruz was was very cool. Just uh, I, I rode my bike everywhere, so I didn't have a car. And there's that huge hill, so my thighs got enormous. But <laughs> I I, uh, I tried surfing for the first time. That was really fun. Um, you know, it was actually a, an extracurricular activity at Santa Cruz. Of course. And, <laughs> and I was playing music and started studying art. And that's what I ended up getting my degree in with a year abroad in Barcelona. But um, And I was playing in a band called Super Sauce with Maya Rudolph, who later went on to be in Saturday Night Live and have an acting career and is a wonderful singer and just as hilarious in person as you would imagine. Um, and that was fun. And our the crowning gig before I left to Barcelona to study art was we opened for No Doubt at the Catalyst 
And I had actually met Gwen Stefani in high school at a show, and we all took her, took her and the rest of the band skinny dipping at the reservoir in, in Santa Fe. <laughs> so that was, it was fun to see her again. Um, and though she didn't go skinny dipping, I should say, the rest of the band did, but I was disappointed she, she didn't join us. She stood on the shore, um, but she came to the reservoir. So I was playing congas and rapping in that band. As as was, I cannot picture it. Uh, yeah, you know it's wild because a lot of the music that I really love that has come full circle to me um, is music that I heard as a kid in the early seventies. Mm. You know, and and something about those early years really stuck in terms of music that just feels right to me mm. to make. But you know, at age uh, eighteen, nineteen at UC Santa Cruz, I was listening to Tribe Called Quest and hip hop and. That's what was going on and that, what I was into. I was learning to play the drums and piano, and I was studying uh, West African drumming uh, and playing for all the, the dance classes. It was a good time. I, I think uh, I like learning, and I miss that aspect of university sometimes mm. of, of just, well, what else am I going to learn? What else would I like to learn? What else can I study? You found yourself in San Francisco. Did you live there? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I moved to San Francisco so I did a year abroad in Spain, and then I came back to Santa Fe, New Mexico for a year. Mm-hmm. And I was doing a lot of art and playing a lot of music there. But then I um, moved to San Francisco, and it was it was a really hard time to move to San Francisco, much like now. There was 0% housing availability. <laughs> and so I, I, went, I was living on a friend's couch for months while I was going to interviews every day. Just There would be 30 people lined up to interview for a room that was just the dining room with a you know, with a curtain in front of it. Uh, but eventually I found a great place with some great roommates. You know, just somehow it was it was easy. I just walked in and we'd just hang out and chat. And they said, okay, you want to move in? That was it after all this months of struggling. And this was before uh, Craigslist. So on Upper Haight Street, you used to have to go down to this, I can't remember what it was called, but there was a space and they would have printouts of all the stuff oh, on the wow. walls. And you would have to call people on the phone and make an appointment and go and see. And... uh so I lived on Upper Haight, and then I moved to the foggy Richmond district um, in San Francisco on 3rd and Clement Street. I didn't like the fog. <laughs> and, and my room and my window opened up onto like a wind tunnel, and just three feet away was the gray wall of the next house. I, I was pretty low. I was pretty depressed. Mm. Uh, the, the place was kind of moldy. Uh, so I painted a sun on a piece of cardboard and I nailed it to the house next door so that when I woke up, you'd see the I'd sun. Out, I would see, I'd see <laughs> the sun shining. And that, that's where Painted Sun Records, which is uh, my record label, got its name. Now you live in Mill Valley, which I've actually been to Mill Valley. And I'd love for you to just, if people haven't been, to just describe what this town is like that you live in. Yeah, I feel really lucky to be here. Again, it's the Redwoods that really called to me and where I feel very much uh, a kinship and at, at home with those trees. Um, but it's also the city's not, you know, it's 20 minutes away and then uh, the ocean is is just over the hill as well. Um, and when it gets really hot, the, the fog rolls in, so we get this nice breeze, but the sun will be shining, but there'll be a cool breeze coming off the sea. So I feel really lucky to be here. It's been, um, it's been a big part of my life at this point. I didn't expect to be here this long. I, I looked into... Uh, moving other places, and in fact, um, moved everything to to Romania, to Transylvania, um, at one point, and lived there for a while. Um, but uh, came back here, and there's a lot of musical roots in this town too. The Grateful Dead are around here in Marin County, and and Bonnie Raitt. 
Bonnie Raitz out here, Maria Muldor, my my dad's friend from <laughs> back in the day, is, is here in Mill Valley. Um, What's the music venue called that everyone plays at? The Sweetwater, you're probably Sweetwater. thinking of. The Sweetwater, yeah. So I had all my uh, first CD release parties at the Sweetwater, uh, which is a wonderful. There was a, the old Sweetwater uh, where I saw Taj Mahal and Elvis Costello and, um, boy, all kinds of J.J. Uh, Kale. Wonderful wow. play, people would play there. And... Uh, I really wanted to play there, and I would walk down um, and meet the owners in person and gave them my uh, my first CD. Uh, it was before, yeah, my first CD. I would do it daily for weeks and months until they finally um, gave me a, gave me a chance to play, and um, and that was just a wonderful place to play. Um, and then, so that building's been sold. It's been bought. Uh, there's a new one that is owned by Bob Weir from The Grateful Dead, um, Sweetwater which is also a wonderful space. I played there as part of the Mill Valley Film Festival nice. a little while back. And was scheduled to play there a few months ago, but of, of course, that's all yeah. been canceled. Here's a quote from you to you. You say, the unavoidable creative urge comes first when it comes to creating music. The DIY part is about finding a way to allow the, that creative expression to come to life and reach people. The art demands to be made and I have to find a way. Can you speak more to that urge and demand from art? Kind of sounds pretty rude. Yeah, it's not very glamorous, <laughs> is it? It's, 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 not, it's not a lofty thing in any way for me at, at, at that sort of visceral gut level when uh, songs are demanding to be written. There's other metaphors I could use, but they're they're even worse. You know, they're uh, you know, for it's it's sort of a it's a release, right? It's a purging. It's there's a gathering of energies, of feelings, of emotions that need to be expressed in me in some way, and music helps me do that, and and art helps me do that in a different way, um, putting color on the canvas. I just after it's done, I feel reborn. I feel totally um, emancipated from the that a yoke of what was holding me down. So your latest album is Brighter Day, released in 2019. And a lot of the themes are dealing with the loss of your father and the end of your marriage. Mm -hmm. And you said the close timing of these two major losses brought the awareness of the temporary nature of our lives home in a very real and heartbreaking way. And I wanted to talk about... uh, the spiritual connection um, that was in your life growing up that may have assisted overcoming great loss within your family um, and within your father's family too. Like, seems as though he studied Buddhism, Aikido, Tai Chi, uh, and he had a lot of loss when he was younger. Three siblings and his father all died before he was 12. And in thinking about the themes on Brighter Day, it's just overcoming so much. Um, can you talk about what your parents instilled in you in terms of overcoming great loss and how spirituality played into their example and maybe how you channeled it when creating this latest album? Yeah. Well, I would say maybe it's the other way around. I feel like the great loss opened up a sense of the spiritual stronger in that it really, I don't think I'd really known that kind of suffering before in my life. I've, I've had a pretty privileged life. 
And despite dealing with anxiety or depression at various times in my life, they weren't founded in any particular external aspect of my life. My life. Trauma. Yeah. Just just early experiences um, and inherited experiences, I think, a lot of it, you know. Um, but having this heartbreak really made me um, realize that we all go through this. Most people being born is not easy. I mean, right from the get-go, right? Our, our initial experience coming into the world is is really difficult for for both the, the mother giving birth and, and the baby being born. Um, and then there's difficulties all the way along. And then, you know, I, and I, you know, my dad was really into Buddhism and increasingly I find myself drawn to that and interested in that. One thing that the Buddha said is misinterpreted of saying all life is suffering. Um, and what he actually said was the unenlightened life is suffering. And um, it is amazing to me that, pers- that shifting our perspective on things can change. And it sounds cliche, it sounds obvious, but one of the things that the Buddha said that has really just stuck with me and fascinated me is that, and I'm paraphrasing, (laughs) (laughs) it was thousands of years ago, so, uh, joy is not something that we get from life, that it is something we bring to life. That's good. Um, So I hope, I mean, my hope for making music and making art is that I mean, if it if it was only of solace and a comfort to me, um, it's already useful. Uh, but I feel really blessed and lucky that uh, we're in this together, and that uh, the personal is also the universal. Mm. And I feel like a good a good song and a good and good art communicates that. And I feel really lucky to hear from people that my music has been there for them, and my and my artwork. It, all in the same week, uh, two weeks ago, I got a call. Uh, from somebody whose um, dad had just passed away in his 90s, and they were listening to my music when when he passed, and they were going to have it play at, at his memorial. Wow. And I had played a, a house concert at their home in Cincinnati, Ohio, and so I had met um, met some of them. But um, I, I got that call, and then I heard from a, uh, another woman the same week that her mom had just passed away, and she had these great memories of the last memories of her mom of sitting in the car together and her mom had Alzheimer's at the end. So she didn't remember who she was, but she could put on my music and they, and talk to her about the music and that would keep her present and they could still hang out and talk wow. together. And so she was sitting in the car while her, it was uh, father's day and her dad was out taking a boat ride and they were sitting in Sausalito while, while she gave her, gave her dad a break from taking care of uh, her mom and listened to my music and, I'm so grateful for these kind of stories from people because it's very abstract and sometimes, you know, to make music and put it out there. But the personal stories really bring it bring it home that this uh, has some value mm. for people. And I really appreciate that. And the same week I got a call from somebody I had played their wedding the week before and they were just sending a photo of me playing for their first dance. And I've heard from people who, who have made birth playlists with my music on it. So beings are being born. <laughs> Uh, while listening to this music. Um, so I treasure those stories and invite anybody who's listening if they have those kind of stories to share with me or I love hearing from people. In thinking about reflecting back now in like a practical sense, like during that time writing those songs, how did the process of writing help you heal? Like, was it immediate? Was it scary to approach these dark feelings? Did you write a bunch of it dark was, uh, songs that you didn't use like Bob Dylan? 
you know, some of the, the dark and the light is always all mixed together in there. Um, and in order to have hope, things have to be really bad right now. So it's, uh, they're always mixed together in a painting, I guess, in, in a swath of colors. But um, it's, it's a slow process, healing, grieving, and music helps. Uh, but time, you know, it, it's, a, it's a cliche, uh, but there, I can say, you know, um, as, as time moves, moves the feelings through, my heart hurts a little bit less, you know, when it comes up. I'm grateful for that. Yeah. In order, I think in order to, to feel that loss so deeply, it means I have loved that deeply. Mm. And otherwise, Man, it but wouldn't o- at the you time, you're like, screw that. Yeah, this is rough. This is, that's this is bullshit. Rough. <laughs> <laughs> only only yeah, until, really I mean, rough. for me, it's like only until it's like you're reflecting back and you'd be like, well, I mean, I still, I'm just like, no, it's bullshit. I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there's like certain cliche sayings that you're like, I can't deal with this right now. I'll have to come back to that, put a pin in that and come back. Absolutely. To it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. In fact, there's a line, you know, I, I'm here. I am saying the cliches, but at the time I was I was very much feeling like you're talking about. And I, there's this uh, line in a song uh, that's on this Brighter Day album. They say that time can heal all wounds, but sometimes it's time that does the wounding. Yeah, it's. It's a lot. It's a lot to feel mm-hmm. all this, isn't it? Yeah. It's and, it, and losing someone you love, um, uh, the end of a marriage, death of a loved one, it just brings that intensity like nothing I'd ever experienced mm. before. I read a little bit about your morning routine, and I don't know if you do it every day, but you know, yoga, meditation. You've really, you've really done some digging here. Huh? This That's is great. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about your morning routine? Because it sounds dreamy and how the way mm. that you start your day affects you. Uh, well, I have a tendency, uh, I think we all do to some extent, to repeat myself. Life is very repetitious, you know. Here it is another day. The sun goes down, the sun comes up, we brush our teeth, we, we go to sleep, we do the things that we do over and over again. So... It seems pretty obvious that we should choose wisely what we do over and over again because that's that's what we're watering. You know, that's what we're tending to in our the garden of our self. For me, uh, meditation and daily exercise to start the day, it always makes me feel good. I never regret it. You know, I ever feel like, gosh, I wish I hadn't meditated <laughs> or I wish I'd, I didn't do that yoga or I wish I hadn't... Um, taking the time for that today and or I wish I hadn't gone for a walk you know that was and there's plenty of other choices I've made that I've regretted you know that I feel like that was really just not the best Mm. (laughs) best use to my time (laughs) just now and and we're bombarded these days with the with things that grab our attention and I feel like our attention is our most really our precious resource it's like that's that's our life force that's our energy that's what creates what our life is like is where we put our attention so for me, yes, uh, starting and, and ending to the day with, with meditation is really, really key. And I'm, I'm grateful for that practice. And also, it's an amazing time we live in where these techniques and this information that was guarded in the caves of the Himalayas for thousands of years is now on YouTube, you know, so or podcasts yeah. or available. And it's just, there's so much information available to us, you know, and these screens that can go into any possible universe that we want every time we open it up any music that has ever been made we can hear it any 
any books that have ever been written. It's all right here. And um, there's also a plethora of just junk <laughs> that we can fill our minds with and our time yeah. with. And, you know, sometimes it's fun to have a little junk food and just be like, yeah, this is great. Um, but generally, I just don't feel good afterwards. And I feel the same way with food as I do about what I put in my in my awareness, mm. in my mind, where I put my attention. Um, so, yes, uh, yoga and meditation are something I was exposed to as a kid and it was part of my high school time and my, my college time. Grateful for that. I, I, I did yoga five days a week, twice a day in at UC Santa Cruz. So I was not the typical... A fraternity kid, <laughs> I guess. You were um, not in a fraternity. I never was. Uh, it's like, I was <laughs> going to be true. like, hold just, the phone. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Wait <laughs> yeah. a second. Everything I know is wrong. No, I don't think... <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, no, I mean, I think I have just... In a, in very selfish of me, perhaps, but I like feeling good. I would rather feel good than, mm. than bad. And so the things that make me feel good, I, it ceases to be about discipline for me um, when I know... Gosh, I'll just feel better hmm. if I do this because I don't wake up fresh. I'm not one of those, yay, let's greet the day. <laughs> when I wake up, I'm like, whoa, here we are again, another day in a body on this planet that is overwhelming in many yeah. ways and, and changing all the time. And uh, I feel like in the morning is when I feel like my body is the most stupid. Like I was talking to mm. somebody today. And I'm like, bodies are stupid. Like, why doesn't it just like do what I want it to do? And yeah, and like- What do you want it to do? To not feel like uh, terrible, you know? Right, right. So this is it. This is the key. I mean, this is what works for me anyway. What I've <laughs> discovered is I wake up, I feel terrible. I think, God, I don't wish I would, I wish I didn't feel terrible. And then I meditate and I uh, do yogurt and exercise and- I don't feel terrible anymore. So it's it's pretty it's pretty consistent in that I'm sense. I'm holding out which, for uh, like the I'm, childhood I'm, dream where it's like you just have to do it one time in your life and then you never have to do it again. <laughs> right. The, the one the one big fix, the eternal yeah. fix. It doesn't yeah. work that way. I, you know, I'm uh, so far apparently not. I mean, like even heroin addicts, right? They have that first experience where they go they feel amazing yeah. and then it's never as good as that, but they try to do yeah. it forever anyway. I don't think there's one one big fix out there, and maybe that's the point is is learning to to have that. I guess it's willpower, a certain amount of willpower, where you're actively acknowledging I have a choice, mm. what I'm going to do today, mm -hmm. and how do I want to use my energy, my attention, my my time. All right, we're going to do something that you're going to love. It's called the right. lightning round. I'm going to okay. ask you questions about yourself, but these are not as deep. <laughs> okay. All right, go. here we go. First song you learned on the guitar? Uh, first song. Oh, Freight Train, Elizabeth Cotton. Oh my God, of course it was. Uh, what is your karaoke <laughs> song? Freight Train, Elizabeth Cotton. <laughs> <laughs> no. Karaoke. Um, uh, the only time I have successfully done karaoke and enjoyed it was singing um, Blue Christmas by Elvis Presley. <laughs> Uh, what is the first album you bought with your own money? Oh, boy. Men at Work, Business as Usual. The 80s. It was a rough time, <laughs> musically, I have to say. It was a rough time. There's many people who are huge fans of the 80s, but I get weird feelings when I listen to it. Maybe it was just mem memories of my uh, pubescent age, but um, come from a land down under. What was your first concert? First big concert um, was The Grateful Dead at Madison Square Garden followed by U2, The Joshua Tree. The 80s. At Madison Square Garden. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Yeah. 
Um, but earlier memories of that of concerts were of um, friends' bands in Woodstock, New York. My mom would bring me and leave me under the table, and and you know whoever was playing, and um, and of Kirtan singing, which is uh, what's going on in the communities that I was live, living in. What is and that? Kirtan singing is a devotional singing um, that probably you've heard of Krishna Das. Mm. Who's a he's, no no Krishna Das? Mm-hmm. He's um, probably the most well-known purveyor of of singing these songs that uh, are ancient songs from India that are sung in a devotional style, call and response style. That sounds like some kind of back to the land. That was some hippie, hippie stuff, stuff for sure. Uh, last book you read? I have been on a binge of Terry Pratchett. Are you familiar with yeah. Terry Pratchett? Yeah, the Discworld series. It's very British, uh, dry uh, sense of humor. Have you read very Good light. Omens? Yes, yeah, I enjoyed that. And they made a Netflix series of it as well that was good. Cool. I haven't watched the series yeah. yet. That's the book that I've yeah, re- was... read the most. Yeah, he, he wrote that one with Neil Gaiman, who I also enjoy as an author. Nice. Flying or Invisibility? Oh, wow, that's tough. I think flying. Yeah, I mean, Invisibility is easy. I think yeah. most people are so so in their own worlds already they don't even notice you. But if you uh, if you could fly, I, if I could fly, I would like that. You'd like it. Yeah. Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars was actually the very first film I ever saw in the theater, and I remember the talk, you know, saying this is a movie, this is what a movie is, it's not real life, and you have to go in there. And so I remember the whole whole thing. I was I was really young. I must have been like uh, four years old wow. or so. Um, That's and so cool. So, Definitely have an affinity for, for Star Wars, and you know here in Marin County we have uh, Lucasfilm right here. And yeah, I've, I've been out there for, for events and to see, um, saw the latest Star Wars out there and everything. Wow. So it's pretty amazing, amazing to see uh, just this world that was created from imagination. All right, last question. Make it count. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Oh. I love Mill Valley, I have to say. Mill Valley, I've been all over the world. I love coming home to Mill Valley. This is just just a wonderful place to be. So, I, And uh, a, a second would be Lugano, Switzerland, uh, where I spent a summer uh, working on a film and swimming in the lake every day. And oh, that sounds Just nice. to be able to swim in a lake every single day um, was amazing. Wow. I love that. That's it. That's the lightning round. That was fun. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for doing the lightning round and thanks for talking to me today. Great to see you. Truly a pleasure. Thanks so much for, for doing what you do for your love of great music and everything you do to to bring it to people and, and for your insightful questions. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Basic Folk is produced by Laura McCarthy and Adam Corey with Laura in the producer's chair this week. Lindsay Myers is our business manager and mother-to-be. Congratulations to Lindsay and Sarah. Uh, Alex Stanton of the Pittsburgh band Townspeople, who actually just welcomed a new baby into the world. Congratulations, Alex and Danielle. Uh, Alex does our music on Basic Folk. I'm your host, Cindy Howes, and Basic Folk is very proud to be part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can listen to all 83 episodes of Basic Folk at my website, cindyhouse.net, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Be so great. Thumbs up. Love it. Okay, we'll talk to you next time. Bye.